Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. I'm excited to have a special guest in the studio today, my friends. I am joined by the Reverend Chris Stratton. Chris Stratton is my boss, so I hope this goes well. Um, he is the... He is the academic dean and chair of the Department of History and Theology at Pacifica Christian High School, Orange County, where I work uh, in the history department. And uh, Chris is joining me, uh, having driven down a little ways, and I really do appreciate the effort and the time and the early morning-ish. He's driven down to discuss uh, one particular topic that we want to tackle, which is the gospel and your holiness. Um, before we kind of jump into some of the meat of that, though, I want to just sort of ask Chris maybe about his background. Chris, how you came to faith, a little bit of your your bio, and then maybe we can just go from there. Sure. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be here. Uh, great to be down in South County this morning. South County. I grew up in North County, Orange County, so in uh, the city of Villa Park. <laughs> I uh, grew up in a Christian home and uh, attended a non-denominational evangelical church uh, when I was growing up and uh, made a decision for Christ at a very young age. And uh, since that time, have been walking with Him, but uh, growing in my understanding uh, day by day. Uh, let's see. So I went to a... Um, private Christian school growing up, St. John's Lutheran in Orange, and then um, to a public high school, and then on to Westmont College mm. in Santa Barbara, where I got a religious studies and philosophy degree, and graduated from there in 1995, and was going to go to seminary with the idea of teaching at the university level in theology. Oh, okay. Went and visited Princeton Seminary. Uh, which was kind of the the top seminary in my denomination. I'm a Presbyterian. And visited the seminary and sat in on some classes and very quickly realized that if I went to seminary at that point in my life, it was going to be cemetery hey, for me spiritually. <laughs> what is that? So what does that mean? There's a lot of uh, historical, critical stuff still going on in those classes. Oh, I see. Um, Things like redaction criticism, JDEP, uh, you got it, QRST, <laughs> uh, stuff that was really attempting to kind of like, I think, well intentioned, try and get at the actual history of the text, but in the process, just kind of tearing it apart in such a way that it became sort of undiscernible and incoherent. And so you felt what disoriented by that? Like I oh, felt I'm not ready. incredibly disoriented, and I not think I was. I know I was disoriented uh, as an individual at that point in my life. Okay. So I knew that it was going to cause me to wrestle with things that I wasn't prepared to wrestle okay. with at that point in my life. And there was a counselor that was there actually who um, ended up talking to me and said, "I don't think it's a good time for you to come to seminary." Wow. So I'm, I've forgotten that man's name now, but I'm very thankful That's to him. a rare and tremendous insight that you don't hear very often Indeed. in people's stories. <laughs> yeah. So he, um, he suggested that I not go, and I concurred. And so I came back home and thought, well, what am I going to do now? Uh, 
ended up getting a job and working in business with my brother uh, at a company he was at for about five years and got an MBA and then worked at another company for five, six years. So I was in business for about 11 years. Okay. And during that time, I'm kind of going through a bit of a crisis of faith, not attending church for a while. You're in your 20s? In my early 20s. Okay. And uh, over time, decided to go back to the church because I really felt like God was calling me and saying, hey, you need to be part of Mm. a church. And so I went to church for a year um, to a Presbyterian church, and all I could literally hear when I would go to church would be the prayer of confession. Hmm. That was that was the thing that kind of resonated with me. Now tell I'm we're non-denominational evangelical people on my side right. of the fence. So what is the prayer of confession? Yeah, the prayer of confession is a time within the service where you're um, confessing publicly with the congregation that uh, you are sinful and in need of God's grace hmm. and mercy. And that was about all I could muster at that point in my life. I, I think I was, I know I was very um, sort of beaten down spiritually, um, weighed down by my own sin and needing to hear that God knew about that and he loved me in spite of that. And so one of the great things that happens in our denomination and in many Christian denominations is you do this prayer of confession. You say, God, forgive me, uh, I'm a sinner. Uh, forgive me for the things that I've done, for the things that I've left undone, mm. uh, even for the things that uh, I don't even know about, uh, that I'm sinful. Uh, and then at the end of that, the great thing is that you you hear the assurance of pardon, and it's usually some aspect of Scripture that's read over you, that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mm. Right? He, he loves you. Receive the good news of the gospel. In Christ you are forgiven. And so I would go for about a year. Uh, just I would go and hear that prayer of confession and listen to the sermon, and then I would jet out of there before I had to even talk to anybody because right. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Right, right, right. Hmm. Um, so I started going back to church, and then after about a year, I think the pastor uh, grabbed me on my way out and said, hey, I want you to teach a Sunday school class. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. I was like, since me? You, since you love not being here. Right. <laughs> but I think he knew better. He knew me better than I knew myself, That's and he cool. knew that I needed to get involved. Mm. And so I started teaching Sunday school, and and after a while, uh, some of the Sunday school class started coming up to me and saying, "Have you ever thought about teaching? Mm. You seem to have a gift of teaching. Mm. <laughs> Why don't you go and teach?" Uh, <laughs> You're like, well, I'm doing business right now for right. 11 years. So so then the practice of teaching, the response, we talk about an outward call, an inward call. Um, were you enjoying it as well? Was it, was it something that you were being drawn to? You were obviously investing in it on some level. I was getting a tremendous amount of joy mm. from teaching. Uh, I felt like I was alive in that context. I felt like I got to talk about things that I cared about, that I was passionate about, and share them with others and see other people come alive. Uh, one of the joys of mm. teaching, as you know, is yeah. those aha moments where you see the light bulb come on for somebody, and getting to share in that with them is incredible. It's incredible. And so I was contrasting that with my life in the business world where I was making a fair amount of money, but completely soul-crushing dissatisfaction <laughs> being in business for right. me. Right. 
And then I, at the same time, I started dating uh, Sarah, who is now my wife. And she started saying, why are you in business? Why aren't you mm. teaching? You seem to have gifts for this. So she's saying that. People at church are saying that. I'm remembering the dream way back when coming out of Westmont of wanting to go and teach. And the church is starting to actively push me in that direction. Mm. And uh, through my involvement in the local church and, and hearing the word preached and receiving the sacraments and, and, and going through things like the prayer of confession, God had been working on me and changing my heart and equipping me to the point where I now had a very solidly grounded faith and felt like, okay, I can go back to a place like Princeton or Yale or something like that and, and do that hard work and yeah. kind of not get swept away. And, and you had described having this sort of crushing sense um, in your 20s, these kind of tough years of your own sin and needing to, and, and finding just that, that lifeline in the prayer of confession. When you go to seminary, do you still have that sense or has that also changed? Has, has your sense of your own, I don't know, your own sanctification, your own growth in maturity in the faith, has that freed you from certain things? Has that developed in a different way? Or, or, or what would you say as you were headed to, to Princeton, which you ultimately did go to Princeton, right? Yes. Uh, so yeah, we're skipping over a lot of history here. So at some point, I ended up going to seminary in 2007 okay. and getting an MDiv there at Princeton Seminary. But I would say probably five or six years prior to that, something clicked over for me. Two things clicked over for me in my relationship with the Lord. Uh, number one was taking the idea of God's grace from a theoretical concept mm. to a something that I internalized and, and understood and knew in the deepest parts of me that no matter what I did, no matter who I was, God loved me and forgave me in Christ. Mm. I could talk about that intellectually, but uh, as a result of being in the church, and again, I'll emphasize this a lot, hearing the word preached, receiving the sacraments, uh, just being present to the Lord in that space allowed me to take something that was intellectual and, and bring it down into what we would figuratively call our heart space, mm -hmm. right, where I really understood it and accepted that. And that was tremendously freeing. But then the second piece was, and I think this relates more to the topic we want to talk about today, the second piece was feeling as though um, I was sinful and uh, I would never be able to overcome things that I was struggling with from a sinful standpoint. I think I had a conception of Christianity that it was it was essentially this, that um, everybody's sinful, God becomes human, dies on a cross to uh, pay the penalty for our sin, to forgive us of our sin, to take that upon himself so that, so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven one day, kind of full stop. Mm. What I came to understand through that idea was that uh, I would never be able to defeat any sort of sin in my life, that, or, or rather that God would never defeat any sin. He would never kind of make me progress morally uh, in, in this way. And what happened was that I, I had a sin that was, was very perennial in my life, and um, I was just 
very defeated about it. I think for many years prior to kind of understanding God's grace in my life, I had tried to overcome it on my own strength and failed miserably uh, many times, years and years and years. Prayed, I had people pray over me to have it removed, and I was kind of in this uh, spot where I just thought, yeah, God's not never, he's not ever going to take this away. This is this just is, part of who I am. This is just, yeah, part of who I am is what it means to be a Christian. <clears throat> you know, you'll always remain sinful. Um, and the point of the gospel is just that you're forgiven. Mm. And so functionally that kind of played out in my own life um, where I just sort of started accepting things that were sinful and, and then felt strongly compelled to not tell anyone else um, what to do with their own sin. It's just, oh, I see. It's just, uh, you know. If that's your experience, God loves you. Right. Who are that's you the end of the story. <laughs> We're all good, right? We're all messed up. Right. Everyone's broken. That was Everyone's broken. I grew up with. Yeah. Everyone's broken, um, and and accepting that is part of understanding that that's just the the condition in which God loves us. But you're saying for years and years, the condition in which you feel like you just are, you just, that's where you're stuck. Yeah. That's where you're, the, there's no way out of that place. And, and then you say something clicks. I mean, people are praying, <laughs> this is years, you're going to church, you're teaching. Um, this is before you go into seminary, I think. Um, but then something just changes. Yep. Something just changed. Uh, so as a result of Lots of prayer, lots of scripture reading, fasting. Um, God actually took uh, a sin away from me mm. in a way that I didn't think was possible, and I certainly couldn't take credit for it myself. And that had a tremendous impact on the way that I think about the gospel. It kind of it was like a opening a window in my head. Mm. It was a bizarre experience of like, wait a minute, is the purpose of the gospel our holiness? Is the purpose of the gospel that God is going to make us into the fullest version of ourselves, uh, make us truly human, mm. as you guys were talking about in the last Freedom Podcast? Mm. And in your experience at seminary um, of... I don't know, colleagues or other people studying, maybe in your tradition, fellow Presbyterians or whatever, um, did you find other people who resonated with that, or with that kind of picture of the gospel as the gospel is this whole thing that God is, is saving us into the people, or as you said, to make us fit for his kingdom, to transform us, that the gospel is about not just this the ticket to salvation or the ticket to heaven someday and that sweet by and by but that the gospel is about your holiness that the gospel did you find other people resonating with that did you find a lot of common cause no <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, my experience in seminary is not dissimilar so i don't i don't want to project before before you respond uh for princeton i i, I speak from a different uh seminary context but not probably too far off uh, as far as where they're coming from, um, what was your experience then? There's of? a. It's interesting because there is a similar conversation along the lines of transformation, but it's more of an externalized conversation about uh, social justice or changing social structures, right. or bringing about the kingdom of God 
here on earth right uh through social action right and, and that that really i think held sway so it it just drowned out any idea of of or any maybe focus um on personal holiness right okay because <laughs> i think we would both agree that social action things like that are um, some natural outgrowth of, of people who are being changed. Yes. Um, but you're saying what you found, and I might, I would say I probably found this as well, um, was the focus was not on personal holiness. It was on structural and social um, transformation by people who were still unholy <laughs> or, or, or who, were not, who were not bringing that change or perspective out of their own um, battle and serious struggle to be free from sin. Right. Fair? Yeah. At, you know, I don't want to characterize anyone in a in a particular way, but it did seem at many times like putting the cart before the horse. Right. We're we're the righteous ones. We're going to figure out how to change the social structure. Mm. Um, and, and the righteousness wasn't grounded in I'm a sinner and I need I desperately need God's help. I can't do this on my own. I need the spirit of God living in me right. before I go out and move. It was rather uh I'm the one who knows and I'm going to go fix the problem. And to me that seemed like putting the cart before the horse. And do you uh, think it does stem from people maybe stuck in that moment of your own experience where they've just sort of or we've just sort of consigned ourselves, resigned ourselves to these this sin thing is going to just be a part of my my life this is just a part of what it means to to be you know a person and who can we be except people who struggle with things and do you think it, it was just a moving beyond that rather than dealing with it but just being resigned to that being part of our identity part of our um kind of even how we saw ourselves as christians i think so and i think it goes it goes hand in hand with what you were talking what you and uh Jason, we're talking about Justin. Justin, sorry, yeah, sorry, with respect to freedom, the other day, there one of the most interesting conversations I had at seminary was with a dear friend, and I was asking him about ethics and the ethical content of the gospel and some of the things that Paul will say, where he makes the ethical lists about what you should do um, as a result of being found in Christ, and my friend said something really shocking to me that I hadn't thought about, but I think it was because he had sort of uh, accepted a kind of nihilism um, and coming out of that different way of construing freedom, freedom as just kind of like self-actualization. Um, he said he said that the... Um, I don't want to mischaracterize his words. He said the, the gospel doesn't have ethical content per se other than tolerance of the other hmm. so that um, really what you're trying to do is um, die for the other person uh, so if somebody says they want to do a certain thing or they want to be a certain way and they're self-defining that way that the Christian thing to do is to just love them and accept them and bring them into uh, community with you. Hmm. There would never be a case where uh, you would tell them uh, what you're engaging in is 
wrong or not godly or right, not right. what God would want you to be doing. You would never exhort them that their sinful desires should be crucified with Christ, that they right. should nail them to his cross. And using some of that strong Galatians language or, or any, any place Paul um, talks about, as you say, like those lists of right. what the flesh or the old life was, was up to and what has been crucified or buried in baptism. Um, right. That was removed, and the true Christian approach to anyone would then be, well, you said love. So love meaning um, a sort of empathetic acceptance yeah. without expectation? What, uh, something yeah, like I that? think, well, to use your analogy, I think what he would have said is you should crucify yourself. You should crucify your own ideas of right and wrong. Of, of what sin is. Right. <laughs> of what righteousness is. Right. Okay. Um, do not uh, in any way live out of these moral, what would we say, constructs or something like that. Right. Your moral intuitions. Because those are just ways of dominating other people, and they've been and they've been um, inculturated into you by happenstance or circumstances of time, place, family, etc. Whatever. Exactly. Okay. So then, because you and I both our experiences is that at least our peer group has seemed to, on the one hand, I think a lot of them, I think in my experience, people I went to seminary with, no longer walking in faith um, with with the Lord um, in any obvious way um, and maybe explicitly not uh, walking with the Lord anymore. Um, and was, is that similar of your experience with, with fellow seminarians? Yeah. The, the guy that I'm thinking about uh, is no longer walking with the Lord has left his wife and children. Jeez. Uh, and you know, and I, I, I hesitate to uh, draw a straight line between those two things, but sure. it's hard not to, I, I don't know what's left mm. when the content of the gospel gets evacuated to uh, just kind of this this mere kindness or mere tolerance mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be grounded in anything stable to me. I'm not sure how you build a life based on that, and I'm not sure how that doesn't devolve into just kind of a self-serving endorsement of whatever you want to do it's it's kind of um, like getting pulled around by your passions right rather than your your reason so then maybe there uh, we could we could make a pivot to something you and I were talking about before which is the section in the problem of pain where Lewis discusses God's love because I mean I think this is the tricky thing right is the idea that Christians um, must be loving is obviously true, but then what we mean by love is seems to be differing radically, right? From at least what you or I would understand uh, the Gospels and the Apostle Paul to be talking about. Um, so maybe in one sense, love as a banal kindness that doesn't ask for change, um, because who would I be to ask for that change? Especially if I haven't experienced any dramatic change or if I've just resigned myself to whatever my proclivities or my, my nature has within it. Um, so, so could you maybe give us what, because Lewis is, is kind of tackling that in that third chapter of The Problem of Pain, talking about God's love, but in, in terms that are much different than a sort of polite um, kindness, right? For sure. Yeah, Lewis, Lewis is great on this uh, throughout all of his works, uh, The Great Divorce, The Problem of Pain. 
he's wonderfully consistent. And I think it comes out of the fact that he has a sense that we have a fixed human nature that's been given to us by God, mm. that uh, we are not free to do anything we want. And actually, there are things that we can do that harm our human nature as given to us by God, such that uh, given that we're sinful, uh, we are going to naturally love the wrong things. Mm. And for God to really love us and care about us, it might actually end up hurting us. So he says God pays us the intolerable compliment of loving us. He's Mm. not just a kindly old grandfather who simply just kind of pats us on the head and endorses whatever it is that we want to do and and says, there's a good boy, and just kind of, you know, Yeah, he called rushes it, what, us along. senile benevolence. Yes. <laughs> Which is uh, maybe not fair of all grandfathers, but I mean, it's the, the joy of being a grandfather is not having to get your hands dirty. Right, right. right. Yeah. But instead, he's, he's a heavenly father mm-hmm. and, and, and a good father in the most uh, divine, perfect sense, right? He's not like a bad earthly father. He's a good heavenly father. And in that sense, he desires our good, and will not leave us alone until we are good, mm. because he wouldn't be loving if he didn't uh, come after us and pursue us and really and truly make us good. In that sense, then, the, his God's love ha- has a, a purpose, has a trajectory, a goal, a telos or something like this, rather than maybe... I mean, if it is merely a banal kindness or acceptance, I mean, that's a static... That's a static vision of love, right? Uh, if, if it's love at all, it's a as you are, remain as you are, and then it just becomes almost a complement of my ability to, to have that posture towards you as you are, but without any goal, without any dynamism, without any purpose or trajectory, anything like that. That's right. Yeah, he, God has created us for himself, and his intention is to make us into that self. And to the extent that we are headed away from that in our own sinning, uh, he is going to draw us back to himself. And that process can be painful. Uh, this is kind of the idea of suffering as soul-making, hmm. that, that God has an intention for us that uh, he wants us to live into because it is good, because there is no other good for us that he could offer. And that this requires a, a refining process. Scripture uses language of fire, purifying these kinds of things, testing our motives, things like that. Um, and, and so then what happened? Like, I mean, that, what, what you and I are talking about is not, <laughs> is just plain sort of basic orthodoxy, right, what the gospel has been understood to be uh, on, in any tradition, right, uh, union with God, uh, you know, to, to be transformed into that, into the vision of, of, of beatitude, of perfect communion. Uh, you could Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, these are all, they have different language maybe of talking about union with Christ, but they're all intending this transformation where the humanity and, and divinity is being is being coherently um, sort of working together toward God's purposes in the kingdom. Wh- why why are we why <laughs> why are we so um, unwilling or uninterested in that kind of um, 
what seems to be like a great adventure, right? Like, I mean, it seems to be, it not only uh, potentially has place for the experience of suffering and the challenges that life actually always already has, um, but it seems much more interesting than, than what you and I have experienced to be seducing so many um, in a maybe generic or culturally Christian mode like what do you think is going on there oh there's so much going are we just on. geeked out on like oh it's, <laughs> does, uh, do, maybe maybe ordinary like people just don't think about it in those terms that it is this the drama of salvation of transformation of of becoming holy that it sounds like what does it sound like uh, some tyrant god uh, telling people no with the things that they enjoy or who they are and, and disciplining and scolding or something like that is it it's just a caricature <laughs> this is, I mean, answer all yeah. my, my problems. Here. My goodness. Um, I yeah, mean, what, no, what the genealogy think? of this uh, we should get into and try and unpack a little bit. Um, but the first thing that I want to say is, yeah, this is a divine drama and it is glorious. And I'm just so excited by talking about this and talking about um, the fact that God's God's intention is not just to give us a get out of jail free card. Like salvation is so much more and it's an invitation into this beautiful eternal life that you can start living here and now, that God wants to give you goodness itself and is leading you into that and shaping you and forming you. And I could get terribly excited and just like throw this table over. I'm so excited (laughs) about it. I mean, it's it's awesome. Who you thought you were stuck being as you said, like a window opened in your mind or in your soul right. you didn't even know was there to be opened. Right. Um, the genuine, almost ecstatic experience of being changed. Um, yes. Maybe, okay, so is it that people have not tasted that because they no longer think that is a possibility or even desirable, that we've just sort of, we've domesticated our, our sinful nature to some extent so that we don't look recklessly sort of whatever, socially reckless or out of control, maybe. Um, and then Christianity just becomes a version of, of, of not bothering anyone, of, of not getting involved in people's lives, of not... I mean, we're so terrified that people would think we are judgmental, that we don't believe in this transformation for ourselves. Um, in, I mean, with your... Uh, relationships or, or with people who you know who maybe have not in they've not left the faith okay I guess this is what I'm interested in not left the faith as tragic as our experience of people leaving the faith has been um, but who have just sort of accepted uh, a gospel uh, with Jesus's name in it um, a form of Christianity that does not anticipate or desire change um, what do you think that's serving? Is that just a cultural moment in which we're all meant to be particularly polite or empathetic? It's a good question. You know, when I suppose maybe the best place to start would be to start with my actual friends who disagree with me on some of these things. And I think where they're coming from, what they will say is that a gospel that requires that you change aspects of yourself that you think are fundamental uh, is mean. 
uh, is unkind, unkind. Uh, is off-putting. And it seems that in our culture, we've, what, we've, what we've done is we've secularized a concept of grace. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's grace without a cross. It's grace without punishment. It's grace uh, that just simply endorses the fact that we are all broken and therefore we all ought to love and be kind to one another. As and, like a concession to our own self-awareness of our own brokenness. Yes. Right? Like to extend that same awareness to someone else's brokenness by leaving them alone. The impulse of which is great, right? That's, mm-hmm. That is the starting point. God loves you and accepts you just as you are. Right. Right? Simply accept the fact that you are accepted by God. You have to start there. But if you don't have the whole picture... You'll just stay there. That's the that's the doorway. That's the but you're doorway. You're supposed to stand in the doorway. Right. You're supposed to go in. Yeah, and then I think the other piece is we've secularized that, right? We've just we've removed the cross. We've removed the need for uh, Christ to to die on our behalf, and we've simply just taken the concept of grace, sort of wrenched out of context, and said we just need to be gracious to one another. Right. And that. That full it's a, stop. It's a, the civic ethic. It's something everyone can agree on. Yes. At and this least, is what I think my yeah. friend at seminary meant okay. when he said the gospel sort of, I forget his exact phrase, but it kind of flattens out or relativizes ethics. Hmm. It's, it's simply you need to be gracious to others in whatever it is that they happen to be choosing. Right. And in your experience, I mean, and then that, then... It's not just not enough, but then that fully disagrees with the presentation of, of, of the gospel and the scriptures where certain things are being killed and other things are being brought to life in your own nature, right? In your own behavior, your own desires are, being, are supposed to be killed and others uh, resurrected or, or born anew. Um, yeah, that's the thing. You, like, you see this all over scripture, <laughs> this is this is what I couldn't reconcile. So I, right. I, I think I was sort of operating with this conception of grace as acceptance, uh, as mere acceptance, I will say. But then you go to Paul, and you see Paul saying, you know, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, you know, mortify your flesh, live to the so to the spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, you used to be a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness. Do all these things because you're united to Christ. And there's this dissonance. If you're reading that, you're like, wait, why are you talking about ethics? Um, I thought the gospel made everything okay. Mm. All things are lawful for me. Not all things build up, Mm. right? Like, what do I do with that? And what a lot of my friends have done is just said, well, Paul was just a man of his times, and he's just kind of like parroting um, first century Jewish morals, and we don't need to listen to that anymore because the gospel sort of transcends Paul's transcends kind of crustiness in terms of his <laughs> ethics. Right. Right. It's this universal that even Paul couldn't quite grasp. Right. Um, and so by contextualizing Paul, we sort of relativize Paul. Uh, yes. And, the, and, and ostensibly plenty of places in the gospels where Jesus is talking as well um, <laughs> about righteousness and sin and the need to be holy, to be accepted by God, 
Um, right. It's as though when Jesus says those things, it's just a rhetorical feint on his part. Like, right. Everything he, is just to uh, disturb the Pharisees or, or something like this, maybe, to right. show even the law keepers they're not keeping the law so that they will exactly. be undone by that. And then that gets into what you and I have also seen, which is sort of that hyper-grace um, kind of Christianity, which is every ethical command in the Scripture, in the New Testament, is just there to show you you can't fulfill it, so that you fall on your knees once again before the cross, need your forgiveness, and go back um, into this cycle that just resets you without maturing you. Um, and people get very nervous about describing righteousness because you, you don't want to be working at anything. You don't want to be you know, I mean, not Protestant, right? At least in right. our circles. Right. So that becomes dangerous to focus too much on holiness because you got to remember, you're saved by grace, not yes. holiness, right? Yes. And you and I are saying, Shh, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, the but. doorway and there's a house, right? We, <laughs> yes. We're not disagreeing on the doorway of grace, just as you are, welcomed in. Um, but we are saying you are vitally changed once you make your home with God, once you are, are, are welcomed into this new life, given this, I mean, new heart, what else could this stuff mean? I will give you a new heart, and you, I mean, you won't even need, uh, the, like, much of the scripture, because your new heart will, will demand of you, this new desire will kind of, like, <laughs> yes. like, arise in you, and be inflamed to pursue the things of the Spirit, and you'll find yourself you'll find yourself experiencing a war against your flesh. And all of a sudden, I mean, like, it's so dramatic and it's so intense. Um, and, and then maybe there's just these schools of Protestant thought where it's like, where it's, no, you can't. You can't be like Jesus. And you just need to continue to admit that and just try to start over. Um, so do you think your friends, in your experience, do you think they've been let down by maybe a... Christian tradition of just the grace reset kind of Christianity mm. or 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 that just happens to be dovetailing with your what you said is a secularization of grace which is not expecting change but is just a go along to get along go along to get along and then when it comes to my private experience know that I can't really do anything anyway that Jesus requires and I just need to confess again and receive forgiveness again gosh there's so much there I think the only thing that I can say right now definitively is that there seems to be a different idea of love that's been smuggled in, mm. a different idea of goodness that's been smuggled in, such that love is simply a kind of endorsement of whatever it is a person chooses to do. If God really loved me, he would just allow me to get what I want. He would just allow me to be who I want to be. Express whatever innate desires are latent in this self. Why would God harass me? Right. Right. And the last thing we would want is to have a faith in which um, our vision of God is this petty, annoying HR person or something. Right. <laughs> right? Like telling us what we can or cannot do right. and where and how. Um, because because we love that language of freedom, right? We love, oh, God has set us free, right? Love and freedom cast in, in different ways um, protect against love and freedom as they're expressed in the Scripture. Indeed. Is that right? Um, this Patricia Snow article you and I had been talking about a little bit before, 
Um, it's very, very powerful um, argument she makes in which she describes, uh, I believe the article is titled, Empathy is Not Charity. Right. And she has this line, I just want to read from this, this is kind of saying the same idea that we are, she, she's making this claim that we are an empathetic generation and that people um, are understanding love as, as empathy, as just, just this attempt to imaginatively or vicarious experience someone else's brokenness. Yeah, yeah, to the extent that I can uh, use my mirror neurons to kind of uh, enter into your actual suffering, that's when I'm actually loving you. That's what love is. That's, that's what love and, is. And, and so those who are most able to do that um, are most loving. And she, she has this interesting part uh, near the beginning of her article. She quotes uh, Yale psychologist Paul Bloom, uh, summarizing some of his, his, his evidence, his research, concluding that empathy, strictly defined, ends up corroding personal relationships. He says it exhausts the spirit and can diminish the force of kindness and love. That empathy can do this. And she says, far from being kinder and more supportive of others, overly empathic individuals are so overwhelmed by the sufferings of others that they are finally helpless to help them and may even actively avoid them. Uh, and then she gives an example. Nursing students, for example, whose empathy scores were high, spent more time seeking support for themselves than caring for their patients. And she goes on to describe some of the other examples uh, that Bloom offers in the book. Um, that's fascinating, right? Because that's, on the face of it, it's counterintuitive. Right. Like, how could, how could empathy be bad? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And yet what it seems to do is it seems to rubber bound or redound back upon the individual who is attempting and maybe successfully experiencing deep empathy so much so that they become distressed by what is distressing, right? By entering into all this brokenness, entering into all the suffering that they are at least attempting to um, imbibe themselves, they end up needing to seek more care for themselves and spend more time um, therapeutically addressing now what they have taken on than they are able to care for their patients, right? And so this just being an example of it having the opposite effect um, uh, that it was intended to. Almost anybody would say, "Oh, doctors need to be more empathetic, and nurses, you know, like this is, this is what this is the difference between a good, you know, practitioner, you know, of of health and, and care in these fields." Well, and that's the that's the thing, right? I think so. We're talking about a secularization of grace, right? Right, and and who would say that empathy's bad? Empathy's not bad. Uh, it's a good thing to empathize with others. But I think what's happening in our society, and this is really interesting, is that um, in the past, let's say, maybe our ancestors in the church would have gone to Christ for empathy, Hmm. would have gone to Christ with uh, their problems, and uh, would have sought him out to um, bring them solace, to bring them healing, to bring them life. Hmm. But now what we're doing is we're, we're, because Christ is not an option, because we, we've kind of set him over here to the side, uh, what we're doing is we're demanding that of one another. We're, we're demanding this kind of high degree of empathy that we really can't, it's a burden we, we can't bear. Uh, and, and it wrecks us, as you're, as you're pointing out. 
uh, one of the interesting things that helped make sense out of this for me, and, and, and this gets into where I get into a little bit of trouble with this discussion, is that I'm not a tremendously empathetic person. And when I had to uh, go and do my hospital rounds uh, for my pastoral training, uh, I was very worried that I was going to be a terrible chaplain. And I I was expressing this to the chaplain that was on duty there uh, when I was first starting. And I said, you know, he he said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, well, I'm kind of worried that I'm not going to be a very good chaplain because I I, I don't get super emotional and I I have trouble empathizing. I I tend to live in my head a little bit too much. And he said, I think you're going to be a great chaplain (laughs) for that reason. And uh, I was shocked by that, oh, and I yeah. still didn't really believe him. Right, right. And it turns out that I was actually a pretty good chaplain by, by other people's estimations. And, and part of that was is that I could enter into a room and be compassionate and caring without onboarding all the trauma and stress and anxiety that was in the room, uh, such that I could literally hold someone's hand while they were dying and be with them and be present to them and and speak words of life and goodness from the scriptures to them and go home and put my head on a pillow and go right to sleep. Mm. And that actually made me more able to care well for others uh, than perhaps somebody who was deeply empathetic would have been in that situation. And I think that's what Snow's getting at. Care being in that context... um the ability to be present, the ability to extend um, the words of compassion, of God's love, to be able to be, able to be focused enough um, because not being buried by the, the very real trauma and emotional trauma that, let's say, the family in the room is experiencing, um, care meaning particular things in those yes. contexts especially that you are charged by the Lord to be able to bring to those people in this hour of great need um, in a way that being another family member caught up in the trauma of the emotion in the moment um, is unable, and precisely why we have chaplains, so that they are not having to do everything, that they are not expected. This is why we, it's why the Lord has given us the church, that, there, that, that we are not having to do everything on our own, but that people can enter into our lives in these moments um, to care for us when we need cared for. Um, and it, it, isn't, it isn't incumbent on us to, to be able to be all things at all times in all ways, um, especially in those, those kinds of scenarios. We can't. That's a burden we yeah. can't bear. Yeah. And she's, this is interesting because she says, the. I've, I've had this experience too, um, where people who are deeply uh, empathetic, um, which again can be a, a really great gift from the Lord that can be used in profound ways, if it's in and through the Spirit, um, will be exhorted to take on pastoral roles because a pastor is a shepherd of the soul, curator, you know, the, the cure of souls and, and the caretaker of souls. And I've seen so many people I know who are deeply empathetic just be totally buried by the human drama of what people's lives are actually caught up in. Right. And it is almost paralyzing um, to to absorb that um, in, in ways that are un, maybe unregulated or too 
um, immediate. And, and then, and then maybe we can connect these two things. The need even for a pastor in certain scenarios to, to bring a true word, um, in a context that might be a, a context of emotional distress or brokenness, um, is a really important thing that might feel like a painful word. Um, and it might feel like this is the wrong time to bring this, this word to, uh, or the wrong time to bring a warning or a rebuke or something else. I've had to, I, only a handful of times, but I've had to bring a warning to uh, a husband who was throwing away his family, um, or right. a, a rebuke to, uh, a man who had clearly, um, encouraged his, his wife to have an abortion, um, that there would be in these, in these moments, the need for a true word that might inflict pain as, as a way of caring for someone in, in a, in an incredibly intense moment. Um, so she says today, even the church is increasingly fearful of inflicting pain, afraid of exercising appropriate authority or disciplining our members, afraid of telling them hard truths in the home. Likewise, parents are overly protective and anxious, ineffectual and unsure. They shrink not just from disciplining their children, but even in some cases from bringing them into the world. Um, and then she quotes, uh, Flannery O'Connor in her introduction to memoir of Marianne. Flannery O'Connor. So good. <laughs> okay. So good. So good on these kinds of issues too, of suffering and pain. Yes. That is. And she was intimately yeah. acquainted with it herself. And where O'Connor warns that in an age of unbelief, we are governed by a tenderness that long since cut off from the person of Christ ends in terror. Wow. Um, <laughs> And then, and then Snow says, abortion, opioid addiction, assisted suicide, euthanasia. Can we agree that this is not the brave new world, the death of God theologians promised us, but a new kind of hell with new kinds of suffering in it? Straight fire. That's, that's it. it, it and, and how do you get to that? How do you explain that, right? It's really difficult to explain what... What do we mean when we say tenderness, and what do we mean when we say terror? Yeah, we govern by a tenderness that long since cut off from the person of Christ, which was your point, the secularization of love becomes tenderness, um, cut off from the person of Christ and ends in terror, where we allow sanction um, horrors, um, assisted suicide, euthanasia, even addiction, right? This is just the way he is, you know? Right. Um, There is no fixed human nature that's grounded in God. There is no telos or goal to which God is leading us or directing us or shaping us. Mm. There is only forgiveness for brokenness, which again, it sounds great on the surface. Yes, that's true. We are forgiven. We are loved by God but he will not leave us there, right? And, and what we're trying to do in our society is we're, we're taking the charity, literally the caritas right. of God, which right. is you know, like agape love, right. and we're shifting it towards these things that we've been circling around in this discussion, this, this kind of notion of mere kindness or mere empathy, 
or mere tenderness, right? Uh, who doesn't want to be tender? We all do. But if it is true that we are uh, destined for an eternal destiny that, that God has created for us before the foundations of the world, then it might be the case, as you just suggested, that rather than onboarding uh, someone's pain and anxiety in an empathetic way, what we actually have to do in certain certain situations is speak truth, uh, speak the hard word uh, that that might be received as suffering, as pain, because it would be that thing uh, that would be really that thing that you say would be the really loving thing to say and do, because you realize that this person is a person who has an eternal destiny with God. You would expect nothing else uh, of a parent's love for their child, right? Like that, right? Like just having even just small kids. Like I can't even, I can't fathom um, loving my children with a love that doesn't care about their goodness. Like right. one of the things my wife and I pray over our children is that they will be kind, and and that because we understand that as a gift of the Holy Spirit that is not latent in anyone and cannot be secularized in in some basic sense that this is something that we we want their their nature to be changed by jesus so that they can enjoy you know that that joy that you talked about the the joy of being freed from sinful desires the joy from uh, of being of realizing that christ really does save that we really are rescued from a condition in which we had resigned ourselves to certain things and proclivities like uh, the the gifts of the holy spirit are patience kindness gentleness self-control these things are the result of god's work transforming someone's life away from thinking just of galatians 5 away from the list that comes right before that which is the sinful nature sexual morality impurity lustful pleasures idolatry sorcery hostility quarreling jealousy anger selfish ambition dissension division envy drunkenness and other sins like these against which the spirit wars right like right we, we like that's i want my children to to be like jesus i don't want my children to just be i've seen how they are when right they, when they just be <laughs> no but even that i mean you know this even that very simple example is under fire today right 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 because there is no you're you're operating with a fixed how, understanding right. of what a human person is for right. Right. and what your children ought to be one day yep. but there's there's this kind of like tenderness way of thinking that would say let them um, self-determine what their good is, right? And and this is the problem, as you discussed in your, your last lecture with Justin. Uh, you know, uh, you've got your passions ruling you instead of your reason and your will. So maybe we could say that it's understandable for those who have who do not have faith in Jesus, right? I mean, if there is not a vision of, of this particular God and his good, um, 
you know, then there's no surprise that there's going to be uh, tenderness that turns to terror or, or, or even just banal kindness wherever you look right. as a great high good, right? But the ch- challenge or the real frustration then, or, or even just the exhortation to our own selves, right, is that we would have a form of Christianity that has no transformation, a form of Christianity that has no goal of the good, a form of Christianity that is just a polite, maybe conservative, um, I don't know, free market, um, moral, sort of generically moral um, Christian nation. <laughs> sure. a little too on the nose. But I mean, like, well, we're I, resigning certainly on one on one side, right? Yeah, the, right. the flip side or of that would be, side. you know, you're a social justice warrior and you're right. You're kind of saving the world that way, right? Your your it manifests righteous. itself on both right. sides of the spectrum. So, so then, what we would what we would hope for, and maybe we could just we could land this here. What do we hope for our students when you you talked about the experience of teaching? And the experience of being able to bring people into the joy of something you've seen or discovered. This is why you and I are teachers. This is why we're at the school we're at. This is why um, we're excited to talk about ideas. It's not just because we just like ideas. It's because we genuinely know that in Christ there is an experience that is not found anywhere else. And that um, we hope that experience not only for our peers... Um, but especially for our students, people who are under our care, um, who are excited to bring into these things. Can you maybe talk about what our hopes are um, for, for our students? Uh, oh, that that's, it. that's exactly it. Uh, the joy and the freedom of the Lord. I just want to say, I, I, I feel like talking about, like uh, the Apostle John in some of his epistles, little children, <laughs> you know, I'm, writing, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you these things because they are true Trust, and because they are yeah. good. And because God loves you, mm. and I've, I'm a little bit farther out on the road than you are, and I can see, and I want to report back to you that he is good, and uh, this life that he is calling you into is the fullness of life, is the fullness of joy. And it doesn't seem like it. I, I often talk about the, the Ten Commandments with the students, and I say, I know that these this list sounds like the ultimate buzzkill. Like God wants to just kill your fun, right? He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want you to have all the good things in life. He he wants you. He doesn't want you to party. He doesn't want you to you know do whatever it is that you want to do right now. But I'm telling you, He's telling you these things because He loves you, and this is the only place where goodness is to be found as a human being, right? This is the only goodness God has to give because He is goodness itself. Right. And and to the extent that you would walk in these things, you will have life and you will have joy and he will meet you there. And I try and give them examples of, um, you know, things in my own life where I really felt like I didn't understand a command of God. Right. Like oftentimes we do not see. And if you're like me, you want to see, like, give me the reasons, God. Like, mm. tell me all the, the seven things why you tell me I can't do this. And then I'll trust you. Right, right. And then I'll follow prove you. Prove it ahead of time. Right. Prove yeah. it ahead of time. <laughs> but that's not the way that he works. He he wants us to trust him. And it's in that sense, as we were talking about earlier, that obedience is the opener of the eyes, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a quote from George MacDonald, which, who influenced C.S. Lewis and is one of my big favorite authors. Um, 
it really is true. When you step out onto that road and you follow him, you know, Christ says, follow me. There's a reason he says that. Mm -hmm. Follow me. Step out onto the road with me. We're going somewhere. Start walking. Yeah, Yeah, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm going to show you things that you can't see yet. Uh, When you step out and you follow him, there is joy and goodness there, and you will see. And I can tell you that. I testify to my students of this all the time, of the goodness of God. Like, following him in his paths, even when I didn't know why, or even when I felt like everything within me was pointing in the opposite direction. Mm. And then coming to see further on down the road, and sometimes this takes years. And so I always talk to them about the Old Testament. Look at how long people waited for stuff in the Old Testament. It's years, 23 years, 400 years, you know, generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, we're inviting them into uh, this life with God. You know, he has made them for a purpose, and their hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And when they do and when they start following, they will see Hmm. You you believe in order to understand. Yes. You don't understand in order to believe. Amen. I think that's a pretty good place to uh, to wrap this conversation. Chris, thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for joining us and talking about these things. Um, and thank you for driving all the way down to do so. <laughs> Thanks for having me, David. I really appreciate it. I yeah. appreciate you. It's a pleasure. Uh, my friends, I, I, I do appreciate you joining us on this, on this episode, and I hope you will also join us on the next one. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe and your sweet sweet grandmother old grandmother Eunice Eunice should definitely subscribe until next time may you live well think well and love well Godspeed <laughs>